You are listening to an interview with Jorge Otero Pilos, produced for Attention, the audio journal for architecture. Yeah, lots of people went to Cornell, surprisingly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it survived. We were, that, that might actually be a, a, upset New York. a good place to start. So, um, so you did go to Cornell, uh, and as you said, lots of people went there, including um, Rowe was there. Isaac. Colin Rowe did not go there. He was teaching. Or there. he was teaching there. Yeah. Um, uh, Ram was there for for a while. So can you just sort of? I think of he spent a summer there or something like that when uh, Ungers was teaching. Can you like yeah. just give us a situate yourself within sort of the the academic uh, your academic background, etc., and then how you came to phenomenology? Yeah, maybe specifically the climate of Cornell at that time. Eisenman was the other huge one. Yeah. Um, yeah, he was gone. He was gone, and he, Meyer and Gordon Matta Clark was, you know, not there. Obviously, you know, I think he was dead by then. Um, well, the interesting thing is, when I got to Cornell, the um, the upper years left a little note inside your drawer on how to survive architecture school, and they had a series of like ten points or something like that. One of them was repetition is good; do not question it. The other one, how to estimate how long a project is going to take you. Think about the number of hours, multiply it by two, and then add a zero. That's the, that's <laughs> how long it will take you to complete the project. And the other is um, they recommended a book, and they recommended um, Genius Loci mm. um, by Christian Norbert Schultz mm. to read and, you know, to get you through school. All of us read the read the book and that was my introduction to architectural phenomenology, was to come into contact with this book very early on in my, in my studies. I imagine at other schools you would have been given uh, something to do with the structuralist crowd, maybe. Like, who, was, who specifically at Cornell was pushing this on the students? You know, or encouraging interestingly them? enough, none of the professors really encouraged this. Um, it, was, it was something that came from the students from the upper years. We had some people there, like Mark Yarzenbeck, who I became very uh, close to, who were very well versed in contemporary theory and were not only teaching, you know, deconstructive uh, philosophy, but also questioning it and sort of writing beyond that. We had a number of visitors, you know, sort of all the the roster of the circuit of, of people that were lecturing at the time that were sort of entering, emerging within the field were coming through Cornell, uh, like Mark Wigley, who was there, or Rem Kulhas, you know, was giving talks over there. And I remember that I was doing something very similar to what you're doing right now when I was a student there, which is to interview people when they were coming through Cornell. And I did a television show for public broadcasting for channel, I think it was 13 or something like that, called uh, VETV. With for all, Ithaca? For Ithaca, Ithaca Television. Audience. Yeah, for an Ithaca audience. You'd be surprised. <laughs> and then, it, you know, they re-ran it for a number of times. Probably because they didn't have anything else in the in the stock, you know, to, to play. Uh, but it was, really, uh, it was really just a great place to be able to dig deep into architecture culture, you know, because you're in a way sort of in it, but also removed from it at Cornell. So who would you say were sort of your, your group or your cohort from there? I mean, the, the, the reason I ask is not, not so much to say, like, oh, he's you know, one of them, but, but just to get, like, a broader idea of, of um, 
what was available at the time. Like you gravitate towards phenomenology. Imagine you did a bunch of other things, but like, what are the sort of what are the choices? Yeah. Well, you know, I did not gravitate towards phenomenology. I think because of my teachers. You know, we were we were sort of told to be very suspicious of of phenomenology because of all the sort of essentialism that 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 a lot of deconstructivist theorists that were the young members of the faculty were associating with architectural phenomenology. And as a young uh, student coming in, I really couldn't tell the difference, let's say, between a Colin Rowe and a Christian Robert Schultz uh, in terms of their theoretical positions. And so Colin Rowe was on his way out. He was very ill and, you know, suffered from uh, alcoholism. And I took his last class. And so you really... I, I was really at this moment where there was this transition that you could feel, this generational transition with an old guard sort of, you know, moving out, uh, the Texas Rangers, you know, John Shaw and Lee Hodgkin. Uh, well, some of them are still there, however, and Colin Rowe and so on. And, uh, and then a younger group coming into to, uh, to the field uh, with some degree of stamina, you know, and, and force. And pushing the, the, the older group out. Uh, and what they were bringing in, obviously, was this um, French theory. And while Rowe was physically leaving Cornell, did, would, would you say his formalism was still a presence in the visual work that was being made? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, that's what we were... We were drawing Le Corbusier plant. I mean, I could draw Villa Savoie in plan and section and elevation with my eyes closed. Mm -hmm. I mean, in fact, I mean, as a joke in studio, I... Uh, put together, I put a little um, pad of police tickets, you know, in, you, in which you could be fined for different offenses against architecture. And one of them was, you know, not copying a uh, an element of a Corbusian plan in your own design. Everyone had, you know, a, a Villa Savoie bathroom or a Villa Garche, you know, elevation proportional study or something like that. It was very much, we used to call it the Cornelesque. Cornelesque was very much influenced by the type of work that Meyer was doing. And some of the early work of Peter Eisenman also, this, this idea, you know, of, of taking the, the modernists and sort of chopping them up and reconfiguring them, the, the, the modernist buildings like, you know, the Villa Savoie's or or what have you. More evident in a Meyer than in, a, than in an Eisenman, the sort of historical reference in Meyer sort of becomes an idea about white planes and uh, columns and surfaces, whereas in Meyer you can still see, like, in some of his houses in the, you know, out in Long Island, you can see literally a piece of Villa Savoie sort of chopped in half and then a, the ramp that's inside of Villa Savoie like stuck outside of the building as opposed to inside and things like that so the building's reconfigured. So then years later you find yourself sort of going back to phenomenology? Um, as which, a PhD. Well you know what happened is clearly architectural phenomenology was very present. I mean, you couldn't avoid it, right? Uh, even negatively, because it was constantly being invoked as what not to do. I think that's why the upper years slipped it in the drawer as almost rebellious, you know, like something that maybe they were they were thinking we would all fail, you know, if we actually used the book in our... But it was interesting that you could, you could use the language that you were picking up from those books in studio culture but in the theory classes and in the history classes that was frowned upon 
So there was, you know, you could talk about place and you could talk about the uh, nature of light as being something universal and texture as something that was a, uh, a universal experience. You, know, you could use that word universal in studio, but you could not really use it in your theory papers and in your history classes. So there was that little bit of that tension between the two cultures and even the teachers. In fact, you know, history and theory teachers didn't teach studio at all. And the architects didn't really teach history. They taught some what they called theory classes, which would un be unrecognizable as theory classes today. They, they were mostly like, you know, slideshows of, uh, let's say, we're, today we're going to look at shadows. And we would sit there and look at patterns of shadows and sort of more like inspirational classes. So that was the situation at at Cornell. But then later, I, uh, what really made me very interested in architectural phenomenology was my first job, because I went and taught in Puerto Rico. And I helped to start a school of architecture down there with Jorge Rigao, who was the director of this school at the Polytechnic University of, um, of Puerto Rico. And it was a very small startup uh, situation where we... Um, I was the only full-time person over there. There was Rigao, there was Jaime Suarez. There were a couple other people that were practicing and they were adjuncting. And it was a very special little group, very critical um, of the contemporary scene and sort of wanting to establish something new, as you can imagine. But the context of professional culture in Puerto Rico was very um, exclusive. And I mean that in the sense of they drew a boundary against the outer world uh, on the basis of claims such as uh, local architects have an inherent knowledge of the local conditions that you cannot really understand if you're a foreigner. And therefore, we really make more authentic architecture than superstar architects that come fly by night and they, you know, make make a building, you know, on the back of a napkin on the airplane and things like that. You know, it would ridicule the, the sort of the, the outsider, which I, of course, was because I was coming in as an outsider to, to teach her. So I was, while I was a type of insider-outsider because I was living there full-time, I was always sort of given the sense that there was a type of knowledge that I couldn't access, you know, that would, that would not be accessible to me simply because of you know, my upbringing and my cultural sort of... And that was very powerful in, in the profession uh, as a type of unquestioned thing. And it came for, from a sort of reading of critical regionalism and this notion that the local is the place where, it, you know, technology understood as a, a sort of autonomous cultural process actually touches down... In, in sort of authentic culture and then gets, gets, uh, gets controlled and, and made to respond to real conditions and so becomes, becomes assimilated. And I was just intrigued by this situation and so I decided to study it. And so that, that led me to look into critical regionalism and look into these theories of place uh, in place making and the notions that I was finding in these architectural phenomenology books of the, the universal experiences that, that places were supposed to have. And I was deeply suspicious of all this. So I, that's how I got into trying to explore it further. 
And I, of course, couldn't do it there because it was, first of all, I didn't have the luxury of time, you know, because we were just busy making this school happen. So I decided to take time off. My initial plan was to return to Puerto Rico, but and then I went, you know, to do a PhD. So already at the beginning of your architectural career, the figures of Norberg Schultz and Kenneth Frampton are coming into your practice as a teacher and as a student, two of the four main figures in your book. And then at what point did Charles Moore and Labitude come into the picture? Uh, well, Charles Moore came later as I did my research, really as a, as a PhD student, and began to look into what was postmodernism. The figure of Charles Moore struck me as a such an interesting one because he was a little bit difficult to to pin down and was although he was very much in academia he was also he was also a little bit ambivalent about his position he was very much a practitioner so whereas Frampton and Norbert Schultz had become let's say historians Moore was more of a practitioner and yet he was incredibly important in theorizing architectural phenomenology and was very much an intellectual. So this made me think, you know, well, what is architectural intellectuality? You know, what does it mean to be an intellectual? And what did it mean back in the 50s and 60s when these uh, figures were, were training themselves? And that's how I became drawn to the whole question. And I, you know, as I did research, I found out that what architectural intellectuality was in the 50s didn't look anything like what it looked like when I went to school. And that just, that I thought was really fascinating. Also because I began to discover that what I'd been taught was architectural phenomenology, all these questions about essentialism and um, the demotion of theory in favor of practice and a sort of uncritical attitude was simply not true. You know, that there was a lot more there to be unpacked. So I just, you know, as any student does, you know, kept digging. Yeah, it was interesting going through the philosophical genealogy that you spell out in the in the opening chapters of your book, because all these strange sort of knots happen, whereby the the founders of phenomenology, Husserl, Heidegger, and then later Hannah Arendt, are sort of tied up with what I had always thought of as the linguistic crowd. You know, if there was a division within opposition's journal between phenomenology as represented by Ken Frampton, and then the sort of structural linguistic analytical crowd represented by Eisenman and Mario Gandolfsones, I had always thought of this as two distinct groups. And then I think you pointed out that for example, Derrida had written a lengthy introduction to his translation of Husserl's Origin of Geometry, and that was only one of many examples of these sort of strange conflations of phenomenology and uh, linguistic theory that later became so distinct within architectural theory. Part of what I was trying to do in the book is to really move back, you know, to a point in time when the divisions that seemed to, to, so obvious to us now, we're not there yet. And so you just get a different perspective of what intellectual culture was and where it came from. And you realize that a lot of the divisions that we consider to be natural today were constructed by players in the field who were trying to advance their own positions and were doing so uh, by caricaturing, to, in, to some degree, each other you know, or reducing each other's positions. Also, the, 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 the sort of 
apocryphal importance of things like oppositions, you know, uh, in as a filter through which to read that early history, to me was something that I really tried to uh, step out of, not to deny any of the importance which is rightly given to the journal and to the to the people that were involved in it, but to to uncover where they came from. You know, what were they re- reacting to? Isha and I were discussing earlier, we both have some background uh, smattering of art history. It's interesting that uh, within analogous uh, movements and art theory at the same time, like the, the group of figures associated around October, there didn't seem to be as much of a division between uh, those using phenomenology and those using structural linguistics as models for looking at artwork and analyzing them. For example, Rosalind Krauss's early work on David Smith makes use of Merleau-Pontian phenomenology, and then later she uh, is talking about psychoanalysis, looking at psychoanalysis, and um, Louis Strauss, and, and th- there doesn't seem to be the this crystallization of the two camps. It, they're just different models that are used at different times in art theory. Whereas in architecture, the, the line, as you said, especially by the 1980s, was crystal clear between the two camps. Well, this is a really important point, and this is why I try to make a very uh, sort of clear distinction between philosophy, the, the philosophy called phenomenology, and architectural phenomenology, because they're two different disciplines. And what I found was that architects were doing certain things they were practicing, they were sharing ideas uh, before any of these philosophers were being invoked. And at a certain point, they felt compelled to look beyond architecture as a way to give credibility to the types of ideas that they had been working with. Now, there's always, you know, architects and people, you know, interdisciplinarity has always been afoot in some way. But in the 1950s, you really get a moment where, because of structural changes in education and society, funding for university research, universities grow. And all of a sudden, you have a lot more university programs in architecture. You have a lot more positions, but you also have a lot more university scrutiny. People saying, well, wait a minute, you know, how do we give tenure to an architect? What are the criteria for judging them? How can we take a building and claim that it is, you know, research? So architects look to the most conventional models of scholarship uh, and try to emulate them in some way uh, as a way to advance within the university system, within, you know, which was a desirable thing to do. And so you see places like Princeton establishing the first PhD program in the country in '49. I mean, that's quite extraordinary, right? Sort of a visionary move, and it's a one-year program. And it requires you to do some drawing and write an essay, and you, you have a PhD. So that uh, is a very different model of what it means to be an intellectual. And yet, within that, you get the first reaching out beyond the discipline of, of architecture to things like philosophy in order to bolster the, 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 the intellectual credibility of the work that was being done in studio. And you have people like Charles Moore, you know, the first one to be reading Bachelard in a, in a serious and sustained critical way and publishing on it. And 
you know, this is a really important thing to, to, to consider, that is that, that there are these different reasons why ideas change, why positions change, and they're not always the best idea wins. They have to do with social conditions that move people like you and I to make certain choices based on whatever they think is necessary in order to advance. And we, we don't like to think that people associate themselves with an idea because it's going to advance their careers. And yet, when you do the research, you see people making those choices. You see people being thrown into situations where they have to make, you know, do with what they have. And you see how social relations begin to distort intellectual work, what we consider intellectual work. Distort may be a strong word, maybe transform, in the sense that what was considered intellectual work at one point, because of these, you know, structural tectonic shifts in the nature of institutions, uh, social relations, economics, you know, just the, what you could make out in the field versus what you could make as a professor, um, change things around. And so, and ideas change as a result of that. So I was very much trying to put ideas back into people's, bo you know, bodies. And in that sense, you know, which is something that phenomenologists also try to do. And to say, look, you know, theory is thought by people who are alive at a certain moment in time who have to eat and feed themselves and maybe their families and are constrained in certain ways. So I was interested in what are those constraints, you know, and how do they tie together? You know, what's the what's the project here? You know, what what is what is how does an intellectual formation come into being like architectural phenomenology where it's clearly out there, but nobody, you know, it's moved along by people who don't know each other, have very different political views, maybe dislike each other, but are somehow in the same world. So what is that world? I mean, we have to take that world into account, right? We can't just write architectural theory as though it's one sort of idea supplanting the next. So there's something very interesting, and, and you, touch a lot, you touch on it a lot in the book about sort of the birth of uh, the, the history theory department within the architecture school as removed from the art history programs. I was just curious as to how you would posit that in relationship to work that was being done even earlier in Europe by individual architects. So if you want to think of, you know, Corbusier writing almost as many books as building buildings, right? This constant production of, of text, how would that relate then to say, the, the history and theory that's produced, say, in Princeton in the PhD department as it evolves. It's not as though architects were never writing about their buildings before, but suddenly it becomes um, a codified practice within the university at a particular time. Well, a subtext in the book, or maybe one of the overt texts in the book, is this this rise of history, the, and that's what the book is called the historical turn, right? Architecture's historical turn. And at, a, at this moment, in the late 40s and 50s, 60s, history becomes like um, the sort of piloting concept around which intellectual work begins to happen in, in architecture. And so why, why did that happen? You know, why did history become so important? So the book tries to unpack that very question. Because, of course, history, the, the role of history in design becomes the sort of central point of 
distinction between the modernists and the postmodernists, right? That uh, the postmodernists, in a sense, caricature the modernists as having no wanting to not have any relationship to history, and, and that, of course, being completely impossible. And modernists, you know, late modernists resist the turn and even today you know the neo-modernists you know return resist the idea that history should play a role in design as a way arguing that that in a way is a constraint on the one hand or possibly even an act of bad faith uh, you become a formalist you know if you try to bring in some form from the past but to go back to um to the 1940s and, and 50s the question was that there were some obvious things that happened. You know, World War Two, right? The enormous destruction under World War Two, and then in the United States, urban renewal. And so Europe and America are witnessing mass destruction for different reasons over you know the course of a few decades, mid-century of urban fabric of buildings, and so the relationship of modernism to the past becomes complicated because, in a way, it it was like wish fulfillment. You know, the the desire to break with the past had happened, and then there was a sense of needing to re to actually make an effort to reconnect. It wasn't as you know, it wasn't a given that the past would be there. So history became a question, but when you bring the past, then that's where I think the phenomenologists became interesting in a way, is that they, they argued that, well, what is the past? You know, they didn't say the past is, you know, that building. They said, let's think about what the past means to us. How do we, how do we experience the past? And of course, then they got into what is experience? And experience always comes it's never pure. It always we're always projecting onto it. We have schemas in our mind. You know, we have experiences that we've previously had through which we read the present. So, with the notion of experience of how do we relate to the past? You know, they uh, I was almost asking the same question: How do we relate to the present? You know, the, the the very act of experiencing is one in which history is embedded in that experiencing, as they saw it. And so experience led them to think about the past in a way, and this is where Labatou was so interesting, in a way that wasn't necessarily formalist. You know, they were really trying to hang on to this modernist idea that, that modernism is not a style. And so it's a, it's a way of doing something, right? It's a way of, then what is that something? For many, it was a, trying to relate architectural building technology to uh, human experience. I mean, they were arguing, well, look, you know, if you, if you follow the idea of building buildings according to the latest modernist building technology, you're just going to get a building. You're not going to get architecture. So if you want architecture, you have to figure out what the difference between building and architecture is. And for many of them, it was relating technology to culture, to the world of human experience. And this is, you know, very much in Frampton's thinking, but it's sort of a, a point of continuity among a lot of architectural phenomenologists. And that culture is in a way also related to human experience, because for, for them, as they, you know, look to, look to human experience, they were saying, you know, human experience is never isolated and an individual, right? And that's a big claim that they made, you know, look, if, if experience is cultural, then it precedes you. And you actually acquire 
your way of experiencing the world. It's not sort of pure and transparent and like the same for everybody. And so they just kept pushing on that and said, you know, look, that means, a, you know, if, it, if experience precedes us, it means it is historical. It means that we actually relate to the world in a historical way. You know, that we, we, we relive the past. We, we enact it. And the same goes for architectures. They became very interested in traditions and traditional architecture and things like that as a way to, to try to reframe the whole notion of, um, of building technology. You know, in order to make architecture, you had to take building technology and relate it to culture. That was an interesting thought that was not entirely new. I mean, a lot of modernists had already been arguing that in the 30s. I remember you pointing out Labatut's frustration with the division between the reception of the Bauhaus and the Beaux-Arts in America in the 40s and 50s, because up until that time, he understood the Beaux-Arts as a very innovative school through figures like Paul Cret, Henri Labrust, and Eugene Villette-Latouc, using very innovative construction techniques and combining them with Beaux-Arts you know, vocabulary. And it hadn't yet sort of stalled out into copying classical buildings, uh, just, you know, the hollow shell of the classical form, but um, was actually, in, from his view, a, a really cutting-edge school of thought. So when, when does, um, you know, given, given that they're not advocating, there's no advocacy for, for a style, when does it sort of take the, a nosedive, so to speak? You make a very interesting point early on in the book that it's, you know, it's tied to... Um, religion in a very strange way and that mm. it was it's only in those schools that it was actually allowed to be studied because they wouldn't be accused of communism catholic uh, schools uh, so so yeah so the catholic schools are, are like sort of exempt but then it is associated with heidegger so there's sort of a collapse for obvious reasons at that point but then there's somehow you know later on and this is the sort of phenomenology idea that i was educated into it becomes associated with this touchy-feely type of architecture. You know, it's frowned upon both in sort of the theoretical discourse frequently and in studio culture. Uh, when, when precisely do you locate that? The shift to touchy-feely? Yeah. Like, when, when is it, like, not allowed anymore? All the complexities of experience that you were just talking about seem to be earlier on when different models of phenomenology are rubbing up against one another. For example, the extreme poles in Labatou's sort of adoption of phenomenology were on the one hand art psychology through the figures of, or perhaps this was a little bit later, through the figures of Rudolf Ernheim and Georgi Kepesch, which posited this sort of physiological, you know, fairly scientific understanding of visual perception. And this was loosely under the umbrella of phenomenology, I know not explicitly. Architectural phenomenology. Architectural phenomenology. Which drew from all sorts of sources and not exclusively from so-called phenomenologists. And then on the other end of that pole, at least for me, is a figure like Gaston Bachelard, who, at least in the Poetics of Space, mixes Heideggerian phenomenology with Jungian psychoanalysis, and the imagination becomes very important. Those seem like two worlds apart from one another, those two models. Yeah. And actually, if you read, you know, histories of the phenomenological movement, the sort of intellectual history of phenomenology, Bachelard is actually excluded from a lot of them, not considered a phenomenologist. And within architectural phenomenology, I mean, he's like one of the guys, you know. So uh, that's where there are huge differences. And, well, I mean, I think part of the attraction of Bachelard is that he started as a philosopher of science. And uh, so, you know, he, he, he seemed to unpack 
science. And the other thing that drew architects to him was that he was concerned with innovation. Like, how does a new idea emerge? And he was trying to provide non-causal explanations for scientific innovation. That, uh, for example, in the psychoanalysis of fire, when he makes the claim that how did fire, be, and you know, how did humans invent fire? And he makes the claim, well, they did not invent it by, you know, seeing two twigs rubbing, you know, two trees rubbing together because there was wind and then lighting up in flames, you know. He makes the claim that they understand rubbing and heat because humans have an archetypal image of sex as bodies rubbing together and making heat and life springing from that. So he, he looks to a type of archetypal source as, as, as the origin of creativity, as opposed to scientific, you know, experimentation and so on. So he sort of short circuits that. That was extraordinarily appealing to architects because that's what architects do in studio. You're sitting there drawing and trying to figure out the problem, and it's so complex that it's impossible to actually pull it all together. And then all of a sudden, you come up with an idea of a form that in a way resolves most of the problems. Maybe not all of them, but you know, sort of most of the problems that then you can tweak. And so where does that come from? The idea of creativity in Bashnald was very appealing to architects because of that, because it didn't it didn't require sort of laboratory work, you know. So design research, you know, what is design research? I mean, now we call it design research, but back then it wasn't called that. Ultimately, it's about where do, I, where, where do ideas come from? So I think if we had to go back to your original question, where does it fall out of favor? It falls out of favor at the precise moment in which a different modality of architectural intellectuality comes into being that can then make the claim to exclude the previous form of intellectuality. And what I tried to map out in the book is that that is a generational moment, that at any given time, you have about three generations competing for power within any field and certainly within architecture. I mean, within architecture, maybe you have four because people tend to sort of stick around. So the shift happens precisely at that moment. Kenneth Frampton... Charles Moore, Norbert Schultz, that generation, they were all born in the 30s. And they're about 60 in the early 1990s. And they're all starting to be frail, you know, and lose positions and, you know, having a hard time resisting the generation that was born in the early 50s, in the late 40s, about 15, 20 years later. And those are, that's the generation that's in power now. Right, and they come into power then because they're about 45, and they assert themselves, and actually take over the positions from from that were that that were created by the previous generation. But in order to displace the previous generation, they have to accuse the previous generation of not holding up to their own standards. That's a very typical move, and so the very people that created the intellectual positions within the field get accused of not being intellectual enough by the next generation who then takes up the mantle of intellectuality. But in so doing, they have to make sacrifices and adjustments. And one of the major sacrifices that that generation had to do in order to make the claim that the older generation was not intellectual was to say, 
we withdraw entirely from practice. That's what makes true intellectual. Right? And so you get all these architects that are trained as architects that do, most of them do PhDs. They're the first generation, second, well actually, you know, if you, if you look at really the Princeton tradition, they claim they're the first generation of PhDs, but in fact, that's not true. That already is a rewriting of history because Moore was the first generation of PhDs. But when Vidler comes at to, at, to Princeton, he revamps the PhD program and says, that, that, that stuff before me was not a PhD. I think he pointed out that only seven candidates had received the PhD under latitude. Is that correct? Uh, probably. It was, not, it was not very big a cohort, and they had the weirdest professional lives afterwards. Like Father Prokes, you know, became a Jesuit and went off to, you know, Salve Regina University and taught architecture over there, you know. And Maybe to go back to Latitude for a second, because he's just a fascinating character. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of information out there about him. And it seems that his genius to me as an administrator, a practitioner, and a pedagogue was his ability to ride that line and to not exclude either practice or the, you know, more university-sanctioned PhD work because he enlisted the philosophy department as an ally and then also had this strain of what was then or was shortly after called art psychology. And he was able to marry these two things so that he could pitch architecture as something scientific, philosophically rigorous, but also without sacrificing the, the figure of the artist-architect. Yeah, I just wonder if you could speak to how that how that emerged, or how how he rode that line, and how long he was able to sustain it for as long as he lived, and then he fell into obscurity. I mean, it was really interest. It's very interesting how his own students did a disservice to him. He was one of those figures that, uh, for me, was a real discovery, and I I got into him through some mentions in Charles Moore's interviews. He was talking about Labby and, and whatnot, and I'm like, who is this Labby, you know? And then I and just start pulling on this, and then it turns out that he was one of the most prominent figures in architectural culture in the 1940s. He was getting the same prizes as, like, all the major architects. He was, you know, on everyone's lips. He all, you know, like seven deans in, in the United States had been his direct students. I mean, like, how could this be that we have no clue who this person was? How could it be that that name had never come up? You know, somebody so influential. How could it be that people at Princeton sort of vaguely knew the name as like a prize that gets awarded or something like that? That just boggled my mind. And I, the more I looked, the more amazing he was. And probably because he was just so extraordinary, he just... People drew a lot of inspiration from him, so much so that they really didn't want to give him credit for it. I mean, when you look at learning from Las Vegas and the studios that the Venturis did, they're a carbon copy of the studios. I mean, carbon copy. Let's take that with, with a grain of salt. I mean, they're deeply indebted to the, um, to the studios that they took under Labatou, who required them to draw windshield diagrams and windshield drawings from the point of view of a car. So Labatou was deeply interested in experience, deeply interested in the past, had insisted that this was what made architecture different from building, and he had been able to, he, he saw the writing on the wall 
when when the Germans came in the 30s and began to take positions of power within American academia. And he saw the gamble that Hudnut had done at Harvard with Gropius, in which Gropius had said, Beaux-Arts, the French, the German, were friends, we can work this out. And the minute he got the job there, he brushed aside Hudnut. And Princeton was small enough that he could hold, he could keep it isolated, and he, he didn't invite any of those people. And when he invited them, and they were vaguely associated with the Bauhaus, like Bunshaft, he made sure the students ridiculed that person in print. So a lot of what played out was a deep transformation of American education from the Beaux-Arts model to the Bauhaus model. And in that deep transformation, Labatou became persona non grata because the, the, ba- the Bauhaus won out in those stories. Right? Even though the Beaux-Arts system always remained sort of active and under you know, uh, the radar, and America was never Weimar Germany in terms of its, of, of its education system. You know? Yeah, Kret was at UPenn for... Kret was at UPenn, and there was that, you know, Penn-Princeton axis, you know, with, with Kahn and Labatou. So there were deep connections, but, you know, you have to also think of the geopolitics of this. You know, France after World War II is no longer... I mean, it's certifiably dead as an empire, right? The last generation of people that speak French as the international culture uh, language, uh, the, 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 the sort of language of diplomacy, if you will, right? In the language of business, that was it. I mean, after World War II, people started speaking English and there, were, there was a lot of financing put into that with the Marshall Plan, with various fellowships like Fulbright and so on that began to you know, cultivate a English as, as the language of business and diplomacy. So, I mean, some anachronistic organizations like UNESCO still maintain French and things like that, and, and some backward countries like Spain, you know, I went to a French school, you know, when I was growing up. My parents were like, if you want to be international, <laughs> you got to go to a French school. There was an American school. I didn't go to that. But that happened. And I think that's also partly the reason, because people didn't want to associate themselves with Labatou, who was so deeply committed to a very nuanced understanding of the Beaux-Arts. Right, which wouldn't look anything like what today I would think of as, you know, a Beaux-Arts-looking studio. I mean, there are so many interesting oppositions within the book um, and contradictions, and one of them was Labatou's allegiance to this Beaux-Arts tradition, although he developed this elaborate pedagogy which looks nothing like it. Or maybe it was his allegiance to Frenchness or something. Like, it was difficult to pin down what about the German tradition repelled him so much or that he saw as a threat. And um, I wonder if that's tied to his Catholicism, if that's the answer. I'm not sure, because Mies was a Catholic too. I think it had more to do with the sense that Bauhaus architect, Bauhaus-inspired architecture willfully tried to exclude history from design as a point of departure, so precedence, you know, and looked exclusively towards the construction industry for solutions. And so he felt that, and even said it, you know, that that was throwing the, the baby out with the bathwater that um, it was important to maintain that connection to history because that was 
that was how building became architecture is that history had in it culture and so for him the problem was okay well then how do we relate to culture what what is it you know how do we understand form how do we understand form as having already embedded within it certain meanings and cultural practices and so on that's that's very difficult to to teach and understand yeah it also seems like a very particularly at the time it's a very high stakes question um, and and this would you know maybe to lean back against the catholicism you know the church does have sort of discussions as to you know how to how to represent itself how to create religious spaces um, so that is sort of a question that, that he has to contend with. That is a historical question. And again, I wonder like if that, like if that resonates later on with, uh, with who he is, or, or is that a separate issue altogether? Yeah, I was having trouble articulating what, what he saw in the Bauhaus as a threat. Maybe one of the things, at least, was the abstraction versus figuration conversation. Whereas, like you were saying, in the church... That, those were, that was a very high-stakes debate. That's right, yeah. When you look at these two models, the Bauhaus model and the Beaux-Arts model, and you try to put them on the scale of, let's say, a humanist education of the sort that Princeton and a lot of the Ivies were known for, Beaux-Arts definitely is a little bit on the higher humanist, and Bauhaus is definitely on the more technological, sort of technological institute, right? So there's a division there, and it's significant that Mies went to IIT, Illinois Institute of Technology, right? And so I think there was also that playing out, which, you know, what is a humanist education? And the relationship to history as, as a sort of the standard of, of um, humanist knowledge, you know, of knowing the classics, knowing those sorts of things, what, knowing, sim, you know, the meaning of things uh, like works of art, like great buildings, like great works of literature. You know, this was very important to what Beaux-Arts education uh, brought. And so for them, that, you know, that tension also had to do with a, a type of feeling that that the Beaux-Arts, uh, uh, that the, sorry, the Bauhaus education sort of cut all that out and made architects into essentially technocrats, service providers without any criterion about what's happening because they're just executing. So I think from the point, point of view of Labatou, that was also really, you know, all these things were sort of probably in his mind, you know. There was probably a little bit of elitism there, you know. Here are all these universities being created and, you know, this this training of architects is, is you know, they're cutting out history just because they're trying to make education more expedient, you know, get them out into the field quick. Uh, and so they're cutting out the essential things. And so also his pushing for all these things had to do with trying to give a competitive edge to, to his students. And he did. He was able to, to create a cohort of students that did very, very well. And in fact, took over, 15, 20 years later, took over American education. You mentioned that Labitude didn't write a lot compared to the other figures in the book, but he was certainly invested in his relationships with philosophers, specifically this figure, Jacques Maritain. And I think that it just goes to your point that while he did bring in this art psychology aspect to sort of perhaps sell it to the university, I'm sure, I mean, there was a legitimacy to it too. It seems like this relationship, this career-long relationship 
was critical to his work. Maritain having this also very important political connection to the Catholic Church. He was a figure that I was unfamiliar with, at least. When did you come across him? I came to Maritain through Labatou, because, I mean, you just, you know, go to an, into his archive and, you know, Maritain figures prominently in it. Uh, the letters, you know, that they wrote to each other, the correspondence, I mean, this was a major, major influence, uh, and major friendship. I mean, they traveled together, and they were, you know, Maritain was a neo-Thomist. I mean, he was not a, a phenomenologist. But neo-Thomism is important because it's pre-modern, basically. It's an, it's an anti-Cartesian philosophy. And in that sense, it, it dovetails well with phenomenology and, and its critique of Cartesian so-called rationality that then is picked up by people like Perez Gomez and, uh, and associated with the, you know, the, the querelle between the moderns and the ancients and Durand and so on. So there you can see how architects are looking at what's happening in philosophy and they're mapping it onto their own tensions and, and contentions within the field and saying, well, we have a problem with modern architecture as understood by, let's say, the Bauhaus. If that's modern, then we're, we want to be different pre, let's say, what's the alternative? What they're looking to philosophy, pre-modern. Or what are the different critiques of this sort of rationality that, that is all-consuming, that it would be like sort of just technological rationalism? So they're drawing freely from neo-Thomism, from phenomenology, in search for arguments that will help them advance their position vis-a-vis what's you know, the other players in the field who are trying to, you know, gain ground. Um, and they're gaining ground how? Through gaining positions within institutions, through gaining positions within, you know, launching journals, uh, setting up, you know, discourse, controlling discourse, essentially, controlling how we understand what's happening. To some degree, I think, with, with your work, and actually we recently few months ago now, we interviewed um, Julian Rose and uh, Derek Cardi, the formless finder, and we were looking through their book, and you have an essay featured in there um, about preservation. And I think in, in both uh, both the book you've written now and uh, the preservation essay, you sort of bring back these you know ideas that, at least for me, were like not as much part of discourse anymore. So in fact, you're, you're sort of generating, or you're creating a new discourse, or, or a resurgence of an old discourse or what what do you think is um, at stake like what do you think pedagogy can benefit from the phenomenology as understood by by Labatou that's a very difficult question because I don't have let's say a um, a desire to instrumentalize the history of architectural phenomenology today part of what I was trying to do in the book is to is to give it its due not to celebrate it not to demean it unfairly, as I saw my uh, teachers do. But, you know, just to allow people to just read it for themselves. I mean, to, to look at this in a, in a new way, a chapter that we all thought was a given and something that everybody asked us not to look at anymore, to take an, another look, and but to, to look at the most interesting moments and to look how, at how indebted we are to it. Well, one of the things that excited me uh, when coming across the book was that it debunked a lot of myths, stereotypes that we have about architectural phenomenology, which I think come 
large part, at least personally, through Peter Eisenman's lectures and articles. He talks about this, you know, what he perceives as a threat of the digital phenomenologists, which I assume means the sort of discourse around affect and ornament um, in the mid-2000s. And one of the myths that it debunked for me was that where Peter always caricatures phenomenologists as uh, visual, interested in embodied experience and a physical experience of the building, Whereas his crowd, who was appropriating structural linguistics, they were interested in text. You can talk about a phenomenology of text, or a phenomenological experience of a text, as Bachelard does, and as Roland Barthes does. Well, that's his view, which is, uh, you know, deserves the, the, uh, the attention that anyone's view deserves. But there are records, and there are archives, that suggest a... A richer story and a more complex story. Again, I think it's important not to lose sight of the stakes, the importance of of controlling what architectural intellectuality is. Because if you don't have a claim that architecture is intellectual in any way, then what is architecture doing in a university? Right. I mean, we would be in trade schools. That's you know learning how to build. So it's really important. And people are going to argue very, very vehemently about what it means. But to go back to the point we were making before, um, we have to be very aware that, and especially when you're looking historically, that the, it's the best ideas don't always win. So, so I think you know, at least you know the the. By looking at these historical moments, we can at least gain some perspective on the present, too, and say, you know, well, if this was happening then, you know, what's going on today um, that is having an impact on the way that we define what is architecture? And there might be a time when, you know, but when architectural intellectuality is not at all what we think about today. But that's when you become invested in the future. And the moment that you come to terms with that, then you're going to find yourself locked in struggle with other people that wanted to be something else. You've been listening to an interview with Jorge Otero Pilos. The interviewers were Ishai Yudakovitz and Hans Tursak. The interview took place at Columbia University in July 2014. The producer was Hans Tursak. Produced for Attention, the audio journal for architecture.